her back after a much-needed hiatus thanks to some imposter syndrome, anxiety, and depression. Am I Qualified to Do This is back and ready to empower you to tackle imposter syndrome, encourage you to start that next project, ask for that raise, or anything else you can put your mind to. For those of y'all who have been with me since the beginning, welcome back. I've missed you. And for all of those who are joining for the first time, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm your host, Katherine Kelly, constant overcommitter, experiencer of anxiety, studier of imposter syndrome, and constant asker of the question, am I qualified to do this? Including right now as I record and edit this podcast. Man, it feels good to say that phrase again. Welcome to Am I Qualified to Do This, a podcast for anyone who has ever asked themselves the question of, am I qualified to do this? Doesn't matter if it's related to work, raising a child, buying a house, getting that degree, or starting that business, or any other aspect of your life. If you've asked that question, welcome home. This week's guest is one of my first mentors, my college advisor, someone I look up to, and a friend, Dr. Leslie Zorick. Dr. Zurich is currently a psychology professor at Hendricks College, where she has previously chaired the psychology department, the Campus Committee on Diversity and Dialogue, and the Campus Advisory Board on Education and Prevention of Sexual Assault. Dr. Zorich teaches social psychology with a focus on stereotyping, prejudice, identity, and belonging. I mean, she's one of the reasons why I'm such a giant nerd when it comes to those topics. And I'm trying my hardest to um, really share my personal stories because of the things I've learned in her class that I know that it helps affect others' understanding of how the world works. But I mean, she gets even cooler. Her work goes beyond the classroom to reach students um, through research she does with them on prejudice reduction and development of empathy. And she focuses her own personal research on the social benefits of debate and advocacy training. Also, one more gold nugget. She has served as an expert witness on two federal discrimination trials speaking about the benefits of diverse and inclusive educational settings. Not only is Dr. Zorik an amazing educator, but she is also an amazing mom of two beautiful and smart little girls who she's raising to be just as much of a badass as she is. I'm beyond excited to have Dr. Zorik as my first guest for the second season, because though I realized the stories from last seasons were inspirational, we never really got into a discussion about what is imposter syndrome. I just assumed y'all knew. My bad. So Dr. Zorik is here to help fill in some of those gaps, but she's also going to do so much more. Dr. Zorik is a great example of how imposter syndrome can seep into every aspect of your life. Not that she hasn't overcome it. She has. She's kicking its butt, honestly. But sometimes we have to remind ourselves that it's not just a work environment that this can happen in, but it's about being a mother, it's about being a friend, it's about being a wife, all these different things. But sometimes the best move you can make is just to lean in, as scary as that sounds. Now, let's dive into the interview. So Dr. Zorik, I'm so excited to be here with you today. Um, throughout this episode, y'all are going to hear me fangirling over this wonderful person a lot, um, but she has a lot to do with who I am and my obsession with a lot of these psychological perspectives on things, because um, I sat through her social psych class my freshman year, took every other class with her possible throughout the rest of my year in college, and then um, took psych and law with her my senior year and actually did my first research project with her as well. She's like set the groundwork of how to do ethical everything for me. Um, and I look to her as a gold star for absolutely everything. So Dr. Zorik, 
Hi. Hi. You didn't warn me you were going to like make me cry at the beginning when we <laughs> decided to talk, but I'm so, so, so excited to get to talk to you today. And I mean, I can't give away all the goodies, which is why I never tell anyone because I want an authentic reaction at the beginning as I fangirl <laughs> over whoever my guest is. <laughs> totally. That makes sense. So um, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you go yeah. to school? What you do? Why are you awesome? All those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So I went to <clears throat> college at Emory University. I was a psychology and philosophy double major. Um, I went to graduate school at the Ohio State University. And that's where I got my master's and my doctorate. Um, I finished in the spring of 2007, and then I started working the next fall at Hendricks College, which this is my 14th year, I think, teaching at Hendricks. So it's the only like full-time job I have ever had, uh, even though I had a bunch of part-time jobs um, before this. And so, you know, I remember going on the job market in 2007 and I was looking for a small liberal arts college where I could really get to know my amazing, thoughtful, engaged, bright, passionate students like you. And when I came, I, I had actually had several job interviews that had gone well. I was so nervous. I could barely talk. I could barely eat during meals on my interview at Hendricks. So I was like, this is perfect. It's just what I want. I remember calling my now husband at the end of the first like meal I had with the department and I was like, I think I was really weird. I want it so bad. <laughs> uh, thankfully, they overlooked my tremendous nervous awkwardness. Um, and so, yeah, this has been a great place for me. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I have really liked about having an academic career is there's so much flexibility for that job to grow with me as what I want to do has changed and evolved. So when I came in here, I was mostly focused just on experimental research as a way to take the stuff that I know and do something really cool and active with it with students. But what I have found myself doing more and more in the last five years, maybe, is stuff that's about science communication, talking to people outside of the academy about the things that we know and have to offer. And so that has looked like a couple of times testifying in federal trials about discrimination, about how that looks in modern contexts, or doing work for nonprofit organizations, writing a report that uses psychology research to think about how they can maybe better live in their values. Um, and so that thing of like, Figuring out how to communicate to people outside of academic context is, I think, a really important part of what academics have to offer and not something that's normally, you know, immediately part of our training. But I've really been enjoying that more and more. I find myself, for example, <clears throat> because I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, my whole life is thinking about how do I raise them to be anti-racist? And as I think about the conversations we're having or the books that I'm reading, um, I think about how do I translate that into my classes? So a few years ago, I teach this class about stereotyping and prejudice. And a few years ago, I just snatched up a couple of the books in our house that we had been reading, and I took them into class and read a couple to my students. And I said, hey, what does this remind you of that we've been learning? Tell me what theories, tell me what this book is doing that you already know works. So at the end of the semester, I'm like, hey, I know that was kind of silly. It's just where I am. I thought it'd be kind of cool. Let me know what you thought about it on the final course evaluations. And the students were like, this is the best thing we did all semester. <laughs> So then last year, I was like, all right, well, if you like three, let's do 10. And, and so I spaced them out throughout the last month of class. And they were like, oh my God, that was the best thing. So this semester, I think I'm reading them like 22 children's books, like one to go with every topic in class. And so part of our class discussion is about a book that's trying to do that thing. So I, I'm really interested in taking sort of where I am or the moment that we're in culturally and figuring out how to make that part of what I'm teaching and how I'm communicating with other people. Um, First time I ever taught the Stereotyping and Prejudice class was the semester that Trayvon Martin got murdered. 
And every year teaching this class, something happened that we needed to stop and talk about. And so after a couple of years, I added a whole week about race in the legal system so that there was structurally something built in. And I think figuring out how do we, how do we take the space and platform that we have to talk about things that feel important, that let us live in our intellectual values, but also our human values is real important. That's beautiful. And I remember, um, was it stereotyping and prejudice? I took so many classes with you that I, they run together the years wise. <laughs> yeah. But I remember at least two out of the three years that I took classes with you, some unarmed black man was shot. Mm-hmm. And I was just trying to go about my life as a student um, mm-hmm. and, and internalizing everything that's going on in society. And I felt an instant sigh of relief as soon as I entered your classroom each mm-hmm. time because I knew that you were going to create space for us to talk about these things and not in an academic sense, but in a real world, how is this affecting you since? And yeah. you've always been such a great professor in that way that you literally like, forget what we're teaching today. <laughs> That's yeah. not important. What's important is how do you feel? How are you coping? Let's talk about this right now because it's relevant to our class first off. And yeah. second, you should care about your fellow man, which is your student in right. this classroom right now. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. And it just, I remember being in tears both times, being the quiet, child I was in your class most of the times I didn't speak up a lot and just being really in my truth yeah and it was just it felt like everything was just like lifted off my shoulders and I just you were just such a powerful professor for that reason um but you're also just a great person I appreciate you saying that so much like that's what I want I feel like we don't have enough spaces to talk about hard truths of racial injustice we don't have enough space to talk about the white supremacy with which we are socialized growing up in America. And I think that it's, if it's something that I am comfortable doing and I feel like I have some expertise in guiding a conversation, that's just, that's a space that's important. Plus, how are we ever going to learn how to be in those spaces and to be vulnerable if we never get to practice? So this semester when um, I decided not to indict the officers who murdered Breonna Taylor, Obviously, we stopped to talk about that in my psychology and law class and stereotyping and prejudice, but like that day in statistics, I was like, I got to be honest, teaching you about the normal distribution doesn't feel as important as talking about what's happening in the world. And I know that this might not be directly related to our course content, but for you to be an educated, well-rounded person in the world, there have to be spaces for this. And I don't know if you have any spaces for this. So we ended up talking about that for 40 minutes of the 50-minute class, but it Kind of feels like probably the most important day of class we will have all semester because they're they're gonna forget most of what they learn. So I think that if we want folks to be more comfortable creating those spaces themselves, to be more comfortable using their voices, we have to let them practice. And you know, if, if that's something that I can offer, you know, I think as a professor, we're teaching not just our content, but we're teaching about how to be a person, whatever that looks like, to be a competent person doing what they do, the way that we respond and support outside of the classroom matters just as much too as as we're sort of looking for role models, right? Like in college, I was looking at my professors going, I think this is what I wanna do, but what are you like as a person? Like, are you a full human person who you let us see sometimes? And if so, that always really meant something to me. So I'm so glad to hear that because that's what I want, you know, to create for students. And I know I've talked to other Hendrix alumni who have been through your classes and everyone's like, she's the dopest professor they have. <laughs> Like, let's not even lie about this. This, this is her. <laughs> like, she's at the top. She's the real awesome. space, all of it. <laughs> that makes me feel so good. I had a student once, uh, <laughs> a first year student, write on a paper. I asked them to use like APA style, the American Psychological Association style for formatting their references. 
And he was like, oh, this means I get to do a title page with an author's note. And so he wrote me this author's note. This is like maybe five years ago. That was like, Dr. Zork is the coldest professor I've ever had. And I was like, hey, uh, that's a compliment, right? And he was like, yes. And I was like, you know that I'm old, <laughs> right? So I feel like I just got to confirm it felt nice. <laughs> I love it so much. And it just speaks volumes to who you are, honestly. Um, so imposter syndrome, this yeah. wonderful vague concept that everyone mm -hmm. really likes to throw around. I know mm -hmm. imposter syndrome is typically more of a clinical psychology mm -hmm. uh, concept, but it fits so perfectly into social psych at the same time. Because yeah. a lot of the reasons why we don't step up to make differences and stuff is imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, so could you give us your definition of imposter syndrome? Sure. So yeah, imposter syndrome comes out of some research in clinical psych in the uh, late 70s, I think. The authors that originally published this idea, they called it imposter phenomenon, although syndrome, you know, like I feel like is catchier. So that's why that took over. Um, and so their names are Suzanne Enns and um, Pauline Rose Clance. And so their whole idea is like, hey, what's going on sometimes when we see, and particularly they were interested in women who are successful, but who are having a really hard time attributing their success to their own hard work. They see it as luck or circumstance. They just, they have a hard time looking at the awesome things they're doing and saying, that means I'm awesome. And, you know, research in the past 50 years has broadened this out, that like everybody can experience this. Although the people who tend to experience it the most are people who actually have a lot of expertise or who are themselves perfectionists or who's, who are in professions where there's a lot of talk about being a natural genius or innately intelligent at some kind of thing. And I think that what happens then is if I have in my head that I have to be an expert at this or perfect at this, then somehow at some point I'm picking up on the idea that if I struggle with any of it, it means I'm not really an expert. So my experience um, <clears throat> of expertise is I thought I knew a ton at the end of college. And by the end of getting a master's degree, I thought I knew less because I was more aware of how much there was to know. By the time I got my PhD, I thought I knew even less. <laughs> I remember walking across the stage, becoming a doctor. My first thought was, it is so hilarious. I don't know how to use the pump for the blow-up mattress when we have guests. Like, you have to call me doctor now. I don't know anything about anything except like this one thing I teach. And so I think that sometimes the more we know, the more we're aware of how many things we don't know, and it makes it really hard to see ourselves as an expert even when we are. And I think um, there's some research that seems to suggest that this is particularly true for academics. And partially that's because how we define expertise is so narrow, right? Like you're only an expert if you did the original primary research. And so I teach all this stuff in my classes where I'm like, I'm not an expert in this, but like I am, I totally am. I've read the papers, I can understand them, I can explain these concepts really well. Um, one of the things that has been sort of bizarre to me in the opportunities I've had to testify in court about prejudice research is that like courts of law have deemed me to be an expert. And I'm like, this is so weird because all I'm doing is summarizing the work that who I think of as experts did. But really, I think it is easy in academic spaces to underestimate all the different ways expertise can look, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of us are trained to think about it in one way. I think social psychology has a lot to do with this too. What I think about all the time is this finding uh, something called pluralistic ignorance. So when we aren't sure what's going on, we kind of look at everybody else. And originally this idea um, 
was generated by these researchers, John Darley and Bib Latney, and they were interested in why people don't help in emergencies. And I thought that what happens, and I think about like me in college sitting in a dorm room and the smoke alarm goes off, right? Like, and so that you're getting the noises that say you need to exit the building. And inside I'm like, oh my God, is there a fire? This is totally scary. And then I'm looking at all my friends in the room who are super calm and I'm like, I guess it's okay. The problem is all of us are inside like, ah, this is totally scary, but we're all looking at each other and everybody's trying to pretend like they're calm because they're not sure how they should react. And I think the same thing happens with imposter syndrome. I think we go into a new space and we're like, am I smart enough to be here? Do I deserve to be here? Do I bring enough to the table to be here? I respect everybody else so much and look how calm and cool they seem. And on the inside, we're like, oh my God, I don't know anything. And I, they're going to figure out they shouldn't have hired me. And, ah! and we don't see that everybody else feels the same way. So I remember sending a text message to one of my best friends who is a professor the night before my tenure meeting. So this is like after you've been at, at working in an academic institution for some period of time, for us it's six years. You go up for tenure. And basically that means as long as you don't like break the law or any of the <laughs> rules of the college, they can't fire you. So it's kind of this last opportunity they have to decide we made a mistake in hiring you. Every bit of feedback I had gotten for six years said, we think you're great. And the night before I texted my friend and I'm like, I feel like I'm gonna throw up. What if they decide it's all been a ruse and I'm not smart enough to be doing this job? And the friend was like, if anybody else asked you this question, you would say, trust the feedback you've been getting, you're great. And he's like, so I'm gonna say the same thing to you, but of course you feel this way, it's totally normal. And I just remember being like, damn it, I thought this imposter bullshit would go away at some point. Like, why am I still feeling this way? Even when I'm getting a bunch of evidence that says you're great and we want you around, I'm like, I don't know, what if they change their mind? <laughs> I think that maybe we get through it more quickly the more experience we have navigating imposter syndrome, but I kind of don't think it ever goes away because I feel it in different parts of my life too, right? I feel it sometimes as a mom, I feel like sometimes as a wife, as a daughter, but probably the most at work. But I guess at least I know like, well, I've gotten through feeling this way before. That's something. That's true. And I, I feel that deeply. Um, <laughs> I question <laughs> everything that I do right now. I'm moving through that questioning phase a little faster each time. And I'm like, well, at least that's not lasting as long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, kind of a curveball question. Can you tell us a little bit about imposter syndrome as a mom? Like she oh has God. two wonderful girls. Like they are brilliant, smart, young adults, and they're like <laughs> tiny humans right now. <laughs> so like she, she has done such a great job, but I know parenting is definitely an area where you see so many different models and so many things that other people are doing. How do you be authentic to yourself and not feel like an yeah. imposter? Yeah, I think that's the thing, right? Like people make such different choices at every stage of parenting. And the tricky thing is like, I don't think there's a wrong thing to do, but being comfortable with what you're doing when other people you respect do things differently is hard. So I feel like um, my instincts are generally to feel like I'm doing okay because I grew up with great role models for parenting and my parents. I see the benefits of how they did things in me and my brother who are, I think both of us have pretty good coping skills when the world feels hard. We're both pretty good at what we do and we have found sustaining and fulfilling relationships in our life partners. So like, I think there's something where I look at my parents, I'm like, yeah, I would like this for my own children. So that, that sort of makes my default, like I'm probably doing this well. The tricky thing for me is when one of my kids is really struggling with something and the things I'm trying aren't working. It's hard when I'm like, but I was so confident that this was going to help. So my daughter, who is now seven, when she was about three and a half, went through this summer of just being 
a jerk. Like, like she's such a sweet, nice kid. And for a summer, she was pushing other kids, saying mean things to teachers, just really not knowing how to handle her emotions at all. And she didn't have that at two, like normal kids who bite, you know? And partially it was because she was real language delayed. And so she did speech therapy for about a year and a half. Kind of felt like at three and a half, she finally kind of had some words to describe stuff, but she hadn't been practicing using them like all the other kids. And so like, I don't know, four days out of five, we'd pick her up from daycare and there'd be a note about some shenanigans she got into that day. And it, it was just like, where is this coming from? Now at the time we were also moving and about to have another child. So there was a lot going on in her world. But one of the things that my husband and I realized, cause we were like, we thought we were doing such a good job. Like what, where is this coming from? We realized that we had been for years trying to gently correct her behavior when things weren't going well. And we had been praising her when she did good stuff. But also, um, my children are both really large. So my husband is 6'3". Both of my children look about four years older than they are. So my three-year-old is roughly the size of a five or six-year-old. My seven-year-old is about as tall as a 12-year-old. And so they look a lot older than they are. And so what we realized is with our three-and-a-half-year-old who looked like she was six, we were kind of expecting her to act like a six-year-old. Like we realized that we had stopped praising her for like, Hey, you had a day where you didn't hurt anybody. Great job, bud. We were just like, you look like you're six years old, like get it together. You know what I mean? And so it was kind of this moment of like, I feel like we're failing. I feel like I'm not qualified to help my kid through this hard thing. And then our challenge was figuring out what's going on under this. Cause this doesn't mean we're bad parents. It just means this is new. And we haven't figured out what the root of it is yet. And once we burrow down into that, we'll figure it out. So what we would do at the end of every day, we would send her to school and we'd be like, hey, if you have a good day, you don't hurt anybody else. You don't use any mean words. You just try to do the best you can all day. Then we will have popsicles on the porch at the end of the day. And you can pick a TV show. Woo! And we would start the day that way. If she came home and had done that, we would make a big to-do and celebration. What the teachers told us at school was she would do something crummy, push another kid, be mean, something. And then she'd be like, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have done that. And they were like, so it's great. Like she's getting the message. She shouldn't do it. Just like her, her executive control hasn't quite caught up, but you're, you're saying the right stuff. So partially too, I feel like we found that the more we talk to other people about how it's going, the more those feelings of imposter syndrome dissipate. So we're reaching out a couple of times to friends who I really think have it all together with their kids. And I'm like, we're struggling, we're failing. And like their response is always, oh my God, us too. We're <laughs> failing at all sorts of things. And I think that just like with work stuff, I have found more talking about vulnerability and talking about feeling like an idiot or an imposter helps a lot because everybody feels that way. I've also recognized that as I get older, just like there are some folks who just spending time with them stresses me out, right? So those aren't the people I tend to seek out the most for social time. I feel the same way with other parents sometimes, right? So some folks, their approach is so different. I feel myself getting stressed out mm -hmm. and figuring out how to try to cultivate my social space in a way that helps me be my best self and doesn't poke any of those most stressful places, or really what I want is people I can be vulnerable with. People I can say, I feel like an idiot and I don't know what's going on. And that feels safe. And I feel like that's important in work world, but it's also important in parent world. And so recognizing who those people are has been really helpful. That's super important. And I think even me as a dog mom, I have my circle of other dog moms I can turn to and be like, so what the hell? <laughs> what is this happening? And they're like, oh, that's just the teenage dog mode. And you're like, they go through a teenage mode? What do you mean? Yes. <laughs> they're a dog. 
yeah. I mean, listen, we were the kinds of dog parents when we first got pets of like, you know, our dogs slept butt to butt in bed in between us, like a long skinny human, you know, and like, we love them. They're always in our lap. We treat them like members of our family because they are. And I know some folks and extended family members who are like, that's your pet. Why are you treating it like that? And I'm like, okay, well, we're not speaking the same language here. So I'm not going <laughs> to tether how I feel like I'm doing to your reaction to this. Cause we're just like, I think we think about our pets just fundamentally differently. That's so true. <laughs> but there's certain things like I just don't share with certain people because it would just be like, you've lost your mind. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it's like recognizing who the audience is for the like, oh my God, I got the cutest toy for my dog. <laughs> like you got to know who your people are to say that too. <laughs> exactly. And kind of on that route of like kids that aren't truly your kids, your students. Mm -hmm. And you are mama bear to a lot of students mm -hmm. um, in a great way. And I know imposter syndrome is something that I faced it, faced when I was in college and definitely going into adulthood. Like leaving mm -hmm. school, I was even worse. I was like, I don't, I'm not an adult. I don't know why they're kicking me out of the school. Why don't yeah. they let me be independent? Um, and imposter syndrome really has some real world consequences. Mm -hmm. There's, it keeps people from following paths that they think they wouldn't be qualified for because of stereotypes and different mm -hmm. things like that. What role do you see yourself as, as a professor and kind of guiding them through that? And you do a great job at this. This is why I'm asking you the question. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So uh, I think that I remember being in college and I try to hold on to that, right? Feeling like I didn't know what the hell was going on most of the time. And like everybody seemed to have much higher standards for me than high school, but they had decided I was smart enough to be there. And so it just like, it felt very confusing. So I think that for me as a teacher, part of my job is trying to equip students with the tools to combat their own feelings of imposter syndrome. So it is reminding them explicitly that they are capable and that I believe in them. I think that, um, so there's some research in social psychology that says one of the best things that we can do to make people feel like we are creating a safe and supportive classroom environment is to tell them we have high standards and that we believe our students can attain them. And so like saying things like that explicitly, like, hey, I'm gonna push you harder than you might be comfortable with, but it's because I know you can do it. That helps a lot. And whenever I teach about this, students will say, then why doesn't every professor say this? Hmm. And I say, because we assume you know. Like I didn't say it until I read an article about that after maybe five years. I just assumed y'all know that I think you're bright and amazing and that's why I wanna teach in this space. So it doesn't occur to me to say out loud just like it didn't occur to me to say out loud to my daughter, hey, thanks for not pushing any kid today on the playground. Do you know what I mean? Like I just assumed that we all knew that that was implicit in the background. And so figuring out how to be more explicit with my praise, making sure to go out of my way to share things that students are doing well, to give them practice seeing themselves through my eyes, I think is really important. I think it's also important to role model that kind of vulnerability. Talk about like, hey, y'all, I feel like I'm coming down with a cold. I'm not feeling my best. So if anything is confusing, let me know because I don't think I'm at 100%. Like sharing that we have those moments, even if we're usually in a position in the classroom to seem like a competent adult who knows what they're doing. That <laughs> um, I think that's really, really important. And I think like for me, that also looks like informal stuff. So not just writing on a test, you did an amazing job, but asking a student to stick around and walk out of class with me so I can say, I really enjoyed your contributions today. That it's like being sort of mindful and intentional about showing students what they're doing that's great. Because for me as a student, I don't feel like I was intentionally doing anything that was great. It just happens sometimes by accident. Mm -hmm. And having somebody be like, this thing you did was good, then I can be like, I can do that again. <laughs> so I think that that 
matters. I also, for me, part of teaching is developing relationships. And I understand that like not every professor is equally comfortable with this, right? Um, I saw a meme once this summer that rang so true to me that was like some professors are like, here's my fourth dog's middle name. And I'm going to tell you all sorts of stuff about me because we're people getting to know each other. And some people are like, the school requires that I share my name with you so you can call me Dr. Smith. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. yeah, I think teachers have different boundaries that they're comfortable with with students. But for me, trying to role model what it's like to be a person doing something hard who cares a lot and the challenges that come with that, I think is an essential part of teaching is their sort of role modeling piece. And so what that means is I always like it when I get to use examples about my dogs or my kids or my husband, because that's me as a person. It's what I bring to the things that I'm learning. And it also means that when students aren't living up to their potential, aren't acting right, it means pulling them aside and saying, hey, I see something in you you don't see in yourself, and you need to cut this out because you're better than this. It means actually committing to engaging and helping students develop who they are through their interaction with you. That's always kind of what I hope for. And so like, I started thinking of it and calling it my big mom energy. Like I'm comfortable bringing my big mom energy into class, you know, which translates not just to here's how I believe in you, but also like, hey, here's, here's some ways I'd like you to take care of yourself. Like if a student writes me and says, hey, I'm really sick, but I'll be at the test. I'm like, okay, listen, I know I'm not your mom, but if I was your mom, I would say, get some medicine, take a nap, drink some juice. If you don't feel better, go see the nurse. But like class isn't as important as you mm -hmm. as a human. And I think that thankfully students are pretty tolerant of that. I can't imagine that doing that earlier when I was like not that much older than my students. But now I'm like, listen, I can't turn the mom stuff off. And here's what I would say to my kid, honey, rest, you are more important than any one thing that you produce. And sort of pushing back against that narrative that we always have to be hustling. We always have to bring our best. We always, when I had my kids, the first semester I was back on campus, uh, after Josie was born, she was too little to get a flu shot and it was a really bad year for the flu so the first day of class I put up a picture of Josie looking her cutest like little chubby baby cheeks and I was like hey listen so my baby can't get a flu shot and what that means is that if I take the flu home to my baby she's probably going to end up hospitalized if she gets it and we're not messing around with that so don't need a note but if you're sick don't come to class like and I wouldn't want you to anyways but please don't if you can't make that choice for yourself make it for my daughter Josie and I had a student that semester write me and say I was going to come to class today to take the test, so you would know I'm taking it seriously. I haven't been feeling good, and instead I'm going to the nurse. And I wrote her back, I'm like, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for making that choice. And she wrote me back, and she was like, yeah, it turns out I have the flu and strep. And I was like, you were going to come to my class. <laughs> what? Like, I know you take it seriously. Like, you don't have to. And I think, like, I don't know, grind culture uh -huh. tells us we got to just be hustling 24-7, that if you're not on all the time, you're not it. And nobody's on all the time. That is outrageous. Um, and so getting to be a force that pushes back against that narrative of every day has to be your best day because we put that pressure on ourselves and it's totally unreasonable. So pushing back against that feels like a really important thing that I do that isn't on my syllabus, that isn't part of my evaluations, but is something I think more and more is important. And you're so good. Like I remember Hendrix has this I, I think it's so stupid because it always affected me, the stupid like natural Arkansas garden that's in front of the freaking psychology building. And every year, spring and fall, something in that garden blooms that I break out in highs from. Don't know what it is. Four years, couldn't figure it out. Fall and spring, every year, hives. And it always happened to be like a couple hours before Dr. Zori's class. And I'd be like, 
So Dr. Zorick, <laughs> the plan got me again. I'm taking some Benadryl and laying yes. down. <laughs> yes, which is exactly what you should do. <laughs> and like other professors, I'd be like, I'm going to be in that classroom scratching and miserable, not paying attention. And I'm like, that's not bringing my full self. And it sets such good boundaries for me as I became an adult in the working world to being like, hey, I need to take care of me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. what's going on at work can wait there's someone that yeah. can cover for me all that good stuff yes. and I'm going to take care of me for a little bit and like go to sleep because <laughs> sometimes yeah. that is what you need um and I think that's such ha- having knowing someone that is there to support you and having that like support mm-hmm. system definitely in college just sets you up for such success because you mm-hmm. see what a good manager should be and like think of yeah. your professors as managers because they really are a good manager yes. could teach you something let you go off and continue learning about it. Be there to ask questions for and then test you on that knowledge. Yeah. That's I think amazing. that's exactly right. And we act sometimes. I, I understand that we have the option, the longer we teach, of going, I'm going to assume these students are trying to get away with shit and build some policies so they don't. Or we have the option of going, I'm going to assume these students want to do right and to give them grace wherever I can. And I, I understand why people go both directions, right? Like my syllabi started out three pages shorter than they are now, because I have a whole bunch of like, well, if this happens, here's how we're gonna deal with it, you know, because just things have come up. But I decided a long time ago, I would always rather err on the side of assuming students are trying, they're engaged, they care, and that if they're asking for space, they definitely need it, you know? And so that means being more explicit about, it's not just your physical health that's important, it's also your mental health. I'm going to need you to show up five minutes before class in tears in my office asking for space. You should take your space because jobs have the ability for you to miss a day because you have stuff going on and you don't have to explain why. And there is not a lot in our academic life that teaches us good boundaries, that teaches Mm -hmm. us to protect and prioritize ourselves. Because if you burn yourself out, you cannot bring to an academic or intellectual environment what you could if you were prioritizing your sleep and your joy and your, you know, agency. And so I feel like fighting back against that feels more and more urgent, partially because like, so I'm super glad I found a such a good therapist for the first time in a long time that I have sought out therapy. But I started like just before the pandemic hit because I was chair of the department for a couple of years and it was fabulously stressful and I felt like a giant imposter and I didn't realize all this behind the scenes work that had been going on that was so stressful and being in this middle management position meant I was frequently taking back to my colleagues crappy news that they were going to be bummed out about I need to give them space to talk and vent but I also needed us to be aware of the realistic constraints of what we could do and it just it sucked and balancing that because it wasn't something I had practiced earlier in my job I think this thing that a lot of places have of you're good at this job, so you'll be good at managing that job. Such like a lot. that, it's wild. It's such a big leap. Like without training to navigate those leadership things, I think sometimes places can set folks up to fail. Mm-hmm. And if you happen to have that natural skill set, then that's great. But if you don't, like it, it's just a different kind of stress to balance. So I found this therapist I like a ton, and then the pandemic hit. So I was super glad that we had that locked in, you know, for <laughs> us to be checking in. But I realized that like one of the things I struggle with, one of the ways that my imposter syndrome I think manifests sometimes is I have a real hard time with boundaries if students need me. Like if a student is in distress, I'm going to drop what I'm doing, which means that there have been more nights than I can probably count that I go to sleep worried about a student or wake up worried about a student. And I, I love that I care. I love that. 
but figuring out how to care and also to prioritize my mental health feels important. Cause look, I'm not a trained therapist. I don't know how to do that. That sounds real hard. I don't know how to have that kind of boundary with people I care about and I want to help. And so I have realized, like, I wish I saw more role models about boundaries, mm-hmm. about communicating what we need, about boundaries feel like they require us to share some vulnerability. I can't do that because I'm prioritizing myself. I can't do that because I'm prioritizing the other relationships in my life. And I think that that's something that I could really, I would have benefited more from seeing folks do in any kind of role model-y, leadership-y position. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what I'm thinking about more and more too, as I get older of like, I don't, having kids made me realize, am I comfortable with them mimicking this thing that I do? And so I remember like when I got pregnant thinking like, oh, hey, like I had a couple things that kind of stressed me out about my body. And so I want to work on those things so that I don't pass those along to my kids and make them things they're stressed out about, about their body. Or if I feel like I'm not always good at prioritizing my needs then I need to work on that so I can show kids how to prioritize their needs. And so I, I see all these ripple effects from that of like things I'm thinking about at home, at school, things I'm thinking about at school affecting home too. And that's, I think that's a very important because there's not, there's, there's like zero role models of the adult concepts that we're supposed to have mastered. I know. It's, all of a sudden someone's like, do it. And you're like, do what? <laughs> I know, right? Oh, be a well-rounded person who's thriving in all their relationships and has great boundaries. No, I've never seen that. I've literally never seen that. Exactly. And I'm like, and that's, and I think Hendrix is this wonderful college that is small, it's intimate, but it has such a grind culture to it. Mm-hmm. You're like, you're going to party hard and you're going to get straight A's too. And that mm-hmm. is like impossible. Um, <laughs> like that leads to burnout. That leads to all mm-hmm. these other things. But like, it's so magical because you have wonderful teachers like Dr. Zorick mm-hmm. who are there being like, okay, this is what's going on. Take some time. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it's like, you, you look like you're about to break. Please, please go, go sleep. <laughs> go do something yeah. other than be in this classroom right now. And yeah. it just sets you up to understand like, oh, I don't have to do it all. Mm-hmm. I feel like too, part of what I see sometimes happening in college, generally, and this has been true in every college space I've ever been in, is you take a bunch of really high achieving high school students you put them in a space without structure that's imposed on them by families or caregivers. And then it's like, awesome. Well, I'm good at stuff. So I'm going to have a lot more fun. I'm going to enjoy this freedom in my schedule, but I'm still going to hold myself to these outrageously high standards that are harder to achieve without someone cooking for me and making sure I rest when I'm sick, you know? And so I think that figuring out how to do that all for yourself, we don't talk about how hard part of the transition to college that is. Of like, at what point do you decide you need to go to the doctor? I don't know. My mom always decided for me until I was 18. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think like being encouraged to actually keep coming back to yourself, how you feel, what you need, are the things you're doing meeting your needs. Like I have a lot of students who are like, hey, I know I could do all of this, but it's really stressing me out. And then I go, then do less. And they kind of look at me like, feel like that's not right, but it also feels really good. You know, like, hey, maybe you don't have to be involved in six different clubs and taking a course overload. Like, that's too much. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody could do that. You're not not able to do it because there's something wrong with you. It's because it's too much. And what feels like too much also changes, right, over time. It changes from moment to moment. It's okay to have less to give in one semester than another, one year than another, because we have other stuff we're bringing in from our personal life. 
but mostly I don't feel like there's a lot of messaging growing up. And certainly by the time I got to high school, that was, what do you need? What's best for you? Keep checking in with yourself. And that piece of sort of self-knowledge, I was like learning the hard way all through college. I'm like, well, I had a little too much fun this week. <laughs> like, oh, I was too in it with work and I feel really stressed out because I was just using my brain more than I can do and keep up a high quality of work. And so honing in on that, I think takes a while, but inviting people to think about it more, I think is good. So we, um, about three years ago, uh, Dr. Lindsay Kennedy, who works at Hendrix now too, who you overlapped with some. So she started this program that is a well-being programming at Hendrix. Mm -hmm. And so it's all these programs that are designed to proactively get students thinking about mental health, not when they're in mental health distress, but like proactively, how do you try to feel good and set that up for yourself? And we kind of realized when she started doing that, like we had never systematically had conversations basically about preventative care for mental health. It's all reactive, you know? And then one of the things that we're starting to do, which I am obsessed with, because I've been real involved in a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion work happening on our campus, both in terms of programs and like structural committee stuff. But um, she and I have been talking about how you really need to integrate diversity work and well-being work. Mm -hmm. Because they're the same thing, right? Like racial injustice affects people's mental health. People's mental health affects what they have to bring into equity work. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that these aren't separate things, but are important if you want to create a community that tries to care for all its members, like, I don't know why that took people so long to start writing and talking about, but I'm glad they are. We're actually doing this on four days of programming. So Lindsay Kennedy's on family leave right now. She has a brand new, super adorable baby. But the students who are involved in this well-being coalition have been working with me and two other professors to put together basically like a week of evening programming that's about racial injustice and mental health. And like, you know, what, what does racial injustice ask of us as white folks, as black folks, as other members uh, of our community of color? And like, how do we protect people's mental health needs? How do we try to understand student perspectives about how they're balancing? And it's just like, yeah, that's figuring out who we want to be as people has to be part of, I think, what we're trying to do above and beyond just what we learn in our classes. And those students are going to be such better employees because of it. Right? Like, I think so too. Because <laughs> they'll talk, like when things like this happen, they're going to be like, okay, I realize what's going on in the world is affecting you on a personal level and that's coming into work. We're going to create space yep. to have this conversation because you can't divide the two. Like everyone thinks you can. Like there's only so much siloing you can do. And then eventually it boils over and goes into the other one because that's life. <laughs> that's exactly right. One of the things that always when the world feels extra hard, right? When I'm watching black person after black person, black woman after black woman, person of color after person of color get killed by police officers. I'm watching systemic injustice play out in the news and on the television. The thing that makes me optimistic in the face of all of the stuff that I shouldn't be optimistic about is watching students like you who then go on to think about equity and justice as a lens for the work that you want to do, who think about your identity and how it impacts your experiences and then try to create space for others. I think about like all of the ways that you were sharing the things that you're thinking about to the audience and platform that you have. I think about alums who reached out to get more resources that they wanted to share with family members or colleagues. I think about the alum who's at a nonprofit who asked if I would talk to their diversity, equity, and inclusion team about programming that they were putting on and were there some academic resources I could offer to make sure those were really great. And I think about watching y'all 
because we don't feel powerful in the face of systemic injustice. We feel like it's happening. You're just banging your head against the wall trying to make change. But I think about all the stuff I see y'all doing to make your communities a little more just, to make your communities ones that are better at supporting everybody. And I think that has such a bigger impact than we realize when we're doing it. But the more that we equip folks with those tools, the more they take that into their home and their interactions with their kids and their workplace and the conversations that they have with friends. And that, those ripples matter like a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think this is a really good point to start with, but I want to gush over you a little bit more. <laughs> um, I love the fact that you're the center of that ripple. Like your mm -hmm. classes and your vulnerability and your accessibility is what has allowed all of us to come back to you mm. even after all these years and be like, I want to continue this work and I need resources. Can you help me? And yes. know that you will, with a big old smile, be like, heck yeah, like, what you need? <laughs> <laughs> and that I can, like, I the fact that I know that you've been following my journey and without me ever knowing it, like I, I could feel in the back and I'm like, oh, Mama Zorg's back there, I feel her. <laughs> And she's nodding in agreement as I post something on racial justice and backing it up with research that's psychology-based. She's like, yes, you go, girl. You that's, do this. That, that is exactly right. Like, all the time I'll be looking at social media and be like, oh, my God, that's the best. My husband will be like, what? I'm like, let me read you this thing my, my a student I love posted. And it's just, it's one of those things I, I realize not everyone gets to experience a doctor's auric in their schools. I, like, I realize that you are far and few in between. You are one of a kind for sure. Mm -hmm. And there's other professors that might try to have some resemblance of what you bring to a classroom, but they are far away from the excellence that you bring. And it just makes me, it makes me smile because every time I look at research or I pull up a nerdy book on um, <laughs> racial injustice, like my husband's like, are you going to read another injustice book and be really depressed? I'm like, yes, because I need to know the facts. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I need more research to quote and stuff like I need this and I'm like I get this joy from it because I got to sit in your classroom and saw the joy that it brought you to educate others on this topic yeah. and share your knowledge and I hope every day that I am opening someone else's eyes mm -hmm. to something in whatever quirky way that I'm deciding to present it because it's important it's everyday life there's yeah. so much that I learn in your classroom that I literally see happening every day Mm -hmm. right now and mm -hmm. I'm like oh my god I never thought I would use this I knew I was going to use it because psychology is super applicable to everything that you do in life <laughs> but like I never thought I would use this much of it at the same time mm -hmm. and um getting to pull from my psych and law class to talk about why some of the injustices are happening the way they are mm -hmm. um why police shootings of unarmed black men is so high when you look at the mm -hmm. studies of what their tr what the trigger rates are just because mm -hmm. they automatically assume one thing or another because of stereotypes and prejudice mm -hmm. that are there and how all these things underlie I look at myself and I'm like what change am I going to make and I'm like I've been perfectly equipped to make a change yeah. and I can't thank you enough for giving me those training wheels to start rolling <laughs> and slowly mm -hmm. take them off myself and realize that I can be the change I want to see in this mm -hmm. world um, and I know there's so many other students out there that feel very much the same way, um, that you equip them with the resources to be the change. Um, and I don't know how many other alumni might've ever told you this, but you really are, um, the fairy godmother of social justice <laughs> change for anyone who comes to that class. Cause you can't leave not wanting to make some type of change, honestly. 
I love that. Oh, thank you so much. That means so, 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 so much to me. I think, and I see this in the work you're doing, right, on social media. I think passion is contagious. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we feel empowered and prepared, we, we can push for the changes that we want to see in our community. And that can happen in really beautiful ways. And I think that it just takes knowing where to get started. Because I think then if you feel empowered to do something, then you communicate a passion around that work that inspires other people. Like I think, I really think that it is a self perpetuating good cycle, just like there can be self perpetuating bad cycles. You know what I mean? Of like, I don't think I can do this. So I'm not going to try. So I'm going to avoid the thing. So then I don't feel like I can do it. But I think the same is true that if we get past <clears throat> our feelings of powerlessness, if we feel like we've been empowered, we've seen someone who feels like change is possible and we feel like we have some of the tools to just push past those moments of, I don't have much to contribute and those feelings of imposter syndrome. And I think we can. And I honestly, like, I think also we have a lot of ability to make a difference in our own homes. I, one of them, I still tell the story because it made me laugh so hard. I was like, oh boy, you totally have me figured out. <clears throat> so we've started doing through uh, Campus Kitty, you know, the mm -hmm. campus auction where people, uh, we have, there's a silent auction for faculty to donate stuff, students bid money, and it goes to local charities. So what we have been doing for the past couple of years is come get ice cream with the psych faculty, right, at a local pizza place. And so it's been super fun. And a couple of years ago, uh, two students won, and they each had to bring a friend. So one of the two students was like, hey, you know, uh, are y'all like trying to be like super organic and healthy and how you feed your kids? And I was like, yeah, we tried that for like a hot minute after my older daughter was born. And then we were like, eh, people will puree fruits for us. Like th there's other places to spend our energy. And one of the other students who is there, who's a black woman, looks at this student with just incredulity on her face. Like, mm. and she was like, she's trying to make sure her kids aren't racist. She doesn't have time to care about organic food. <laughs> and I actually felt like, yeah, that's exactly right. Like we've chosen our battles. We know the things that we care the most about doing well. <laughs> and we're trying to live in those values with our kids. <laughs> Response though, because it's, it's, oh it's so true to you and yes. your husband. And she said it, I'm like, well, that like, that is just about as much of like a personal theme statement, right? <laughs> as you could <laughs> come up with about me and it's totally right. <laughs> Oh, wow. That was the perfect story to end this on. First, I want to say a very big thank you to Dr. Zorick. Her empathetic leadership, vulnerability, and mentorship is a large part of why this podcast was created. But also, her ability to embrace the unknown with grace and charm and simply take the next best step is foundational to how I address imposter syndrome today. I hope that I am able to have an ounce of the legacy that she has for uplifting others who need it most and continuing to give the voice to those that are voiceless. So many times when we are faced with imposter syndrome, we get stuck in the weeds on qualifications, when sometimes the best answer to, am I qualified to do this, is simply no, but I'm gonna do it anyway, or no, but that's really okay. Sometimes the vulnerability to say that you're not qualified and the courage to keep going regardless is really all you need. Life is a journey and we will never stop learning and that mentality will be your greatest weapon. Tune in on the second and fourth Sunday of the month for the new episode of Am I Qualified to Do This? Because your girl has given herself some well-deserved time to rest because she doesn't know how to do that. Until then, remember, 
If you're not qualified to do it with your wisdom, experience, truth, skills, and personality, then who is?